Have you ever wondered why advice in indie publishing often feels so conflicting, often from very successful indie authors? And they'll give you advice that sometimes completely violates the advice you got from another successful indie author. There is a very simple reason for this, and that is that not all indie authors are the same. There are different approaches that work. In fact, these different indie authors are as different as gymnasts, football players, and swimmers. Football players get a great benefit from being big, while gymnasts benefit from being small. While having a good lung capacity may help a football player a little, for a swimmer, lung capacity is vital. It's everything. If a swimmer took sports advice from a gymnast, the swimmer would train in the wrong direction. Now, I've been working with indie authors for over a decade, and I've really made an effort to work with different kinds of indie authors. And I found that indie authors fit into at least seven different approaches. And so in this episode, I'm going to go through each of those approaches, talk about how they work, how to make them work, common mistakes that people make in those approaches, and then finally tips if that is the approach that you are using. After this episode, you'll be far less confused when talking with other indie authors about publishing. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. Now, I know that there are more approaches to indie publishing than these seven. In fact, if you have a kind of consistent approach that you've identified, I'd love to hear about it in the comments at authormedia.social. We have a vibrant discussion of each episode on our new social network that you can join for free at authormedia.social. So let me know if you have a category that doesn't meet with these seven. But with that said, let's meet the indie authors. The first indie author is the guru. The guru primarily writes nonfiction related to his professional field. The goal of the books is to get more speaking gigs, have something to sell while speaking, so be able to make more money when speaking, and potentially to get more clients. Of all of the authors on this list, the guru is the most likely to have a blog, podcast, or YouTube channel. The guru also, interestingly, is not too concerned if the books make money themselves as long as they lead to making money in other ways. If your book leads to a couple of $10,000 speaking gigs, it doesn't matter if you lost $5,000 publishing the book. Ultimately, it's still a profit-making book. In other words, the books can make money indirectly instead of directly because the guru has other things that the guru sells. The guru is also not typically concerned if the books sell a lot of copies as long as the right people are buying the book. So it's not about getting famous or getting a lot of readers. It's more about getting the business card into the right hands. If the right influencers read the book or if the right potential clients read the book, that's enough. And I will say the guru is probably the oldest form of indie author on this list. Uh, the tradition of gurus self-publishing goes back decades, long before KDP, long before Amazon. Gurus have been independently publishing and making it work for them. There's a very old and kind of established tradition of guru publishing. And the second kind of indie is what I'm going to call the pro-indie. The pro-indie writes fiction, mostly genre fiction, like romance, especially romance, but also sci-fi and other genres. The pro-indie writes to pay the bills and support the family. For the pro-indie, the books themselves need to cover costs. That's how they're making money. They're not using the books to make money somewhere else. They're writing books to sell those books to make money off of those books. And because of this focus on the bottom line, the pro-indie is the most sophisticated of the authors we're going to talk about in terms of using Amazon, in terms of advertising, etc. And the, you know, the Sell More Book Show or 20 Books to 50K conference and community really focus on this kind of indie author. These are authors who write a lot of genre books, one right after another. The next author is what I call the Backlist Reviver. So the Backlist Reviver doesn't write indie books. She writes traditionally published books, some of which have gone out of print during her long career. So she republishes those traditional books 
independently to make a little bit of extra money on the side. And often as an experiment to see if this indie thing is for her. She hears all these stories about indie authors making tons of money. She's curious if it will work for her. And so she takes some of the books that she's gotten the rights back on and puts them out on Amazon. Uh, we have a lot more to say about the backlist reviver here in a second. <laughs> so the next author is the hybrid. Uh, the hybrid uh, is a mythical unicorn, but they still exist. They used to be more common. The hybrid writes both traditionally published books and writes indie books. Sometimes the nonfiction is traditional and the fiction is indie or vice versa. Or sometimes uh, the hybrid writes, you know, a book a year traditional and a book a year indie in the same genre. The hybrid author gets more rare every year, I feel, but you can still find them. And I will say most authors who call themselves hybrids are really just backlist revivers. They're not really writing books for the indie market. They're taking their traditional books and releasing them indie. And true hybrids often have a hard time getting along with their agents. <laughs> One of the like key hallmarks of a hybrid is that often their relationship with their agent is not a good one. Most authors love their agents, but hybrids often come into a lot of conflict. And I'll talk more about this in a second. Right now, we're just doing a quick overview. Uh, the next kind of indie author is the homeschooler. The homeschooler writes books for the homeschool market. This can be fiction or nonfiction, and it's often both, which is interesting. The genre is not the books. The genre is the audience. And this is not a small audience. I was trying to find numbers on the homeschool population. Obviously, it went way up in 2020. Uh, but from the numbers that I found, there, there are what appear to be between 2 and 3 million homeschool students in America. And if their parents each spend $1,000 on books and curriculum, which is very low estimate, most homeschool parents spend a lot more than that. But let's take that $1,000 number just for easy math. That comes out to a 2 to $3 billion market. And that's, like I said, a conservative estimate. I think the actual market's closer to the 4 to $5 billion market. This is a very big market. So don't dismiss this. So like, oh, that's just a tiny market. No, billion with a B. <laughs> and homeschool parents often use paperback books as a key part of the curriculum. It's not a supplement for a lot of curriculums. It's a core element of the curriculum. They use paperback books to teach the social sciences. They use it to teach history. Basically, everything but the hard sciences and the math are often taught through paperback books. Now, homeschool writers often write out of religious motivations, and they can make you know tens of thousands of dollars at a single homeschool event. And collectively, they make millions of dollars a year. And what's interesting is that these sales go overlooked by the industry in general because they're not tracked by the publishing industry groups like NPD BookScan because the sales are mostly done cash on the barrel in person, which we'll talk more about here in a second. The next indie author is what I call the CEO. The CEO is too busy and too important to write a book, but his marketing team or her marketing team has convinced her that a book would help build the company's brand. So the CEO hires a ghostwriting firm to write, edit, and publish the book for her. It's not uncommon for these companies to charge between $25,000 on the low end and $250,000 on the high end for this service. And here's the crazy part. This might actually be a good investment, right? We're talking about companies that might spend $100,000 on a catalog. So spending $100,000 on a book to become a marketing asset for the marketing team to use might actually make sense. The numbers in this world are totally different in terms of what they spend and where they spend it. And there's a whole economy of serving this specific kind of author because they have so much money. So while, you know, spending $500 on a cover or $2,000 for editing is this huge, vast sum for a lot of authors. For a CEO author, it's just a business expense. You know, they're spending $50,000 a week on Facebook ads. Finding a few thousand dollars to pay for an editor is no problem. And that's exactly where the money comes out of. The money comes out of the marketing budget for the company. So it's often companies that have really big marketing budgets. They're spending millions of dollars every year on Google, Facebook, radio, TV, direct mail, whatever. And the marketing team has decided, hey, let's slice off a small piece of that, hire one of these book-in-a-box type companies to make us a book all about what a great company we are and what a great person our CEO is. And of course, bonus points. If the company is a retail chain and can sell the book at the register as the customers check out. But in my experience, for retail CEOs, they often get traditional book deals because they can basically write their own 
check with traditional book companies because that platform of owning your own retail establishment is pretty big. And you may be surprised how many retail establishments have a CEO book all the way from Starbucks to Dollar General. <laughs> they all, all of them have a CEO book and a lot of companies uh, want to have their CEO have a book. Unlike the guru who sees the book as an extension of the speaking, the CEO sees the book as an extension of the business. And another big distinction is that the CEO has a team, has a whole company full of employees, whereas the guru typically is either a solopreneur or has just one or two assistants. They're not running a whole enterprise. And while the guru may end up having many books published, another difference is that the CEO typically only does one book. Uh, you know, spend $250,000 on a book makes sense, but spending $500,000 on two books doesn't make sense. And the companies that serve CEOs, I will say, often target gurus who can't afford their services. So be careful if you're a guru, because just because it works for somebody who can afford it doesn't mean it works for you putting that big expensive company on your credit card. I don't have a whole lot to say about the CEO in this episode because there's not a lot of CEOs that listen to podcasts like these. <laughs> so I don't think very many of you uh, fit in that category. And then the final indie author we're going to talk about is the novice. You can spot a novice because they tend to think that they're special, the rules don't apply to them, and their very first full-length book that they have ever written is a masterpiece. Novices write anything and everything, but you find them most heavily concentrated in the memoir genre. Some painful experience happened to them and they want to write a book about it. The novice has a lot of hard lessons ahead. The novice will learn those lessons the hard way by making a lot of expensive and sometimes public mistakes that give other indie authors a bad name. So when people are throwing shade at indie authors and talk about self-published books being very low quality, they're typically talking about books that come out by the novice. And I'll say something a lot of novices say when I meet them in real life is they say, God has called me to write a book. And I just want to say, God calling you to write a book is not the same thing as God calling you to publish a book. You know, think about what God actually said. Maybe he is wanting to do something in your heart as you write the book. I meet a lot more authors who feel that God called them to write a book than I meet of authors who say that God called them to publish a book. So just keep that in mind. Just because you have a divine calling doesn't mean that success is guaranteed or that publishing is even a good idea. So we'll talk more about the novice here in a little bit. So let's go back and talk about where these different authors publish and sell books. The Guru typically sells books through Amazon KDP. This is Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing. It does both print and ebook. The main way the Guru sells books, though, is in the back of the room after speaking or in person. The Guru hands out a lot of copies of the book to use as super business cards. And the Guru tends to think of the book as a paperback book and primarily sells it that way. The Guru will have an ebook, but that's not where the sales come from. That's not where the action comes from. It's not where the credibility comes from. The benefits to the guru are having that physical book. While the guru has the book on Amazon, the guru is not really relying on Amazon to drive sales. Guru is not really using Amazon to help find customers. The guru is existing in a world of clients and customers, kind of in the real world, the speaking world. And they're bringing people to Amazon to buy their book, not the other way around. Speaking of the other way around, let's talk about the pro indie, which is very reliant on Amazon for everything. Pro Indies often use Amazon ads to find strangers and convince them to read their books. They are on Amazon KDP Select often, so people can subscribe and kind of binge their books, and they get perhaps 80% or more of all of the money they make from one Amazon company or another. In fact, it's not uncommon to come across Pro Indies who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, all of which is from Amazon or Audible or Kindle or some kind of Amazon derivative. Pro Indies also make most of their money from ebook sales rather than from paperback sales. They also make a lot of money through Kindle and limited rentals, and depending on the genre, they make a fair amount through Audible as well. But it's they tend to, in my experience, see their book primarily as an ebook. And it's not uncommon actually to come across a pro indie who's wondering why they even bother with the paper book, because such a small percentage of the revenue comes from the paperback compared to the ebook. Now, having a paperback is so low effort, pretty much all pro indies have a paperback copy of their book, but that's not where they're making their money. That's not where they're driving sales. They're really a, a creature of the Kindle. <laughs> and while both pro indie authors and guru authors use Amazon KDP, 
to print their books. They approach it very differently. For the guru, KDP is just the cheapest and best place to get paperbacks made in short runs. While the pro indie, Amazon KDP is both the means and the end. <laughs> They're often exclusive to Amazon KDP because that's where their money is coming from. All right, now let's talk about the Backlist Reviver. The Backlist Reviver is focused on the new books, the new traditionally published books that she's writing. Now, she knows she has readers who want to buy those Backlist books that are no longer in print. And so she should use Amazon KDP. This is the best choice for the Backlist Reviver. But in my experience, a lot of Backlist Revivers get swindled into other competing services. And the reason they get swindled in this way is because since they don't see themselves as indie authors, they often don't educate themselves on the indie publishing process. And all of these other companies will come to them and say, hey, go with us and we'll make it feel like a traditional publishing experience. We will do all the work for you. And just like in traditional publishing, that company will get all of the money. <laughs> so the thing is, since these books have already been published, most of the work has already been done. It often takes just a few hours of learning to figure out how KDP works can save these backlist revivers thousands of dollars of going with these companies that will promise to do it for them. And now, the backlist reviver, I will say, makes almost all of her money off of ebook sales as well, but for a different reason. Even though she has demand for her paperback sales, she often does not sell many paperbacks print on demand because her books have already been published. In fact, the traditional publisher probably printed thousands of copies of her paperback, many of which are now sitting in that used market or they're sitting at used bookstores and, and that pulls the price down, right? It's really hard to sell a $14.99 new copy of your book when there's a paperback for sale used but in good condition for sale for 99 cents. And it's not uncommon for a backlist survivor to have dozens or hundreds of books uh, for sale at 99 cents. And that's a real tough headwind to sell into. In fact, it's, it can be even hard to sell a 399 ebook when the paperback is only 99 cents. So backlist survivors really have the deck stacked against them because they aren't educating themselves on indie publishing often and because they're competing with their own book. But they can succeed, and we'll ha I'll have tips for them later. So, so if you're a backlist survivor, don't give up. There are ways to make it work. All right. Uh, now, the hybrid also uses Amazon KDP to publish books. There's a reason why almost everybody uses Amazon KDP to do the books, especially the professionals. The hybrid is likely to sell a higher percentage of paperbacks than the pro indie because the hybrid has readers that are used to finding the paper book in bookstores, and so they're buying the paper book from Amazon. Uh, that said, just like pro indies, hybrids are making most of their indie money through Amazon, either through paper or through ebook. When done well, hybrids are able to use the innovative marketing tactics that are only available to indies, uh, <coughs> advertising, <coughs> uh, but other tactics other than that. And they're able to use that to bolster not just the sales of their indie books, but also their traditionally published books. Because not all uh, traditional publishers are using the data-driven innovative marketing tactics that are common in pro indie world. Now the homeschooler in this difference that I'm about to illustrate is was the inspiration for this episode because homeschoolers don't do any of what I have talked about so far. I recently went to a homeschool convention and just went from booth to booth and I surveyed the authors who were there asking them how they published, asking them their approach and having sometimes very in-depth conversations with them. And it was very illuminating. So I, of these groups, I probably interact with pro indies the most. That's the world I'm the most in. Second, probably by the guru group. That's where I do most of my coaching. That's where I do most of my consulting. And while I grew up as a homeschool student, I don't work with a lot of homeschool authors. I work with some, but not a ton. And I wasn't sure if the ones that I worked with were representative or not. So the first big difference was that homeschoolers offset print their books and I, the first one I talked to, I was like, okay, you offset your print your books. But in pretty much every instance, they offset print their books, which means they're printing at least 500 copies and often 1,000, 2,000 copies or more from an offset printer. Now, if you've heard any of my episodes on indie publishing, you know, you've heard me say that this is a bad strategy. And if you're a guru or a pro indie, it is a bad strategy. <laughs> so why does it work for homeschoolers? Well, because they're using a different approach. They sell most of their books in person at homeschool book fairs. They'll load their Ford Transits 
full of books and drive halfway across the country for a convention where they will then sell hundreds and hundreds of copies of their book. And to give you an idea of the size of this market, the Ford Transit is a car that's advertised at homeschool events. And if you go to the Ford Transit homepage, it's got a photo of a homeschool family. So Ford gets it. They know that there's money in this world. And they've uh, finally started targeting this market because they're making millions and millions of dollars selling a, a specific kind of car for a specific kind of family. Because when you have eight children, you're not shopping for a sedan. And if you've never been to a homeschool book fair, they're a little bit like gun shows. If you've ever been to a gun show, there's an entire ecosystem of buyers and sellers who only buy and sell at homeschool book fairs, just like at gun shows. And just like a gun show, there are no Democrats. <laughs> uh, it is what it is. I mean, maybe there's one or two, but it's just it's not that world. So if you are not in this world, you, you know it. There are retailers who will sell tens of millions of dollars worth of books every year that you've never heard of because these retailers only exist as a creature of homeschool book fairs. You have basically a pop-up store will have hundreds or thousands of books on, in, you know, in their inventory, different titles with you know, many more copies of those titles, and they pack up the whole store and take it to the next convention every weekend they're at a different convention and they sell lots and lots of books. And if you want to sell into the homeschool market, having those retailers stock your book is really key. And knowing who those retailers are is really key because they're not retailers that you'll find on any list uh, on any website or not easily uh, find a list on any website. It's, it's a pretty closed community. Uh, for many homeschool authors, Amazon really is an afterthought. In many ways, the homeschool author is a photo negative of the indie author. They're using entirely opposite approaches, and yet often they're both making enough money to support their families. Uh, they're just doing it in really different ways. The homeschool author is making high margins and is doing a high-touch form of selling. They're in its cash on the barrel, whereas the pro-indie is making a smaller margin, but still a higher margin than a traditionally published author. Traditionally published authors make very little. So, so let me walk you through the numbers real quick so you understand. Traditionally published author makes about 80 cents a copy. A pro-indie selling retail through Amazon is going to make, let's say, between 2 and $5 a copy, depending on how they price their book. A homeschool author is going to make $10 to $15 a copy, or let's say 8 to $15 a copy. Why so much more? Because they're making the retail and the royalty. <laughs> they're their own retailer. They're getting the full amount of money, and all they do have to do is cover the cost of their book. So let's say they're selling their book for $15. It costs them $2 a copy to print the book. That means they're taking home $13. Now they have to pay for the booth and the cost of driving across the country. So it's not pure profit, but it's very high margin. And when you multiply that by hundreds or thousands of sales, you can see how authors selling in the homeschool world are making so much money and why they're able to afford spending $5,000 or $10,000 to print the next copy of their book. Another difference with homeschool authors is that they're a lot more likely to sell books from their own website and to do their own fulfillment, which again, I don't often recommend doing your own fulfillment. I, I say authors should write, not be packing and shipping books. But if you have 10 children, there are some perks to having 10 children and paying your children to pack and ship books for you is one of those perks. It's a great chore job and your children work a lot cheaper than any fulfillment house will. And again, it's high margin. And you see this as it's not uncommon for these homeschool authors that the book business is a family business. The whole family goes to the convention or the author will take a child or two, right? If they have a dozen children, they may not take all 12 of them, but they'll take, you know, two or three with them to the convention and the children are often there helping sell the books. It's not uncommon to see that. And I will say there's a big distrust of big tech in the homeschool community. And this spills into a distrust of Amazon specifically. The homeschool community spent millions of dollars creating a decentralized, real-world, in-person alternative to Amazon. Now, that said, uh, some homeschool authors do use KDP as a supplement. They'll sign up for KDP anyway, and if you buy their book on Amazon, KDP is printing it and shipping it to you, while they also have boxes of books offset printed in their garage to take to conventions. And they uh, do this because it's so 
easy to put your book on KDP. <laughs> Why not do it? But the difference is, unlike the pro indie that's making most of their money from Amazon, if Amazon were to cancel the homeschool author, they'd still be able to put food on the table because that's not where the majority of their money is coming from. Now for the CEO, publishing and selling the book is often handled by the company that they're hiring to do the ghostwriting. And the books are mostly sold either on Amazon or they're handed out in person. Sometimes if they have trade show booths, they'll have stacks of books. But again, they're not really trying to sell the book. They're using the book to sell the company. Now the novice, the novice also uses a different approach. There is a company called Author Solutions that specifically preys on novice indies in terms of getting published. And this company is like a Hydra. It has a bunch of different company names. And one is Westbo Press, one is iUniverse, one is Ex Libris, Archway, Balboa, Weifrich, and others. And not only does Author Solutions have a bunch of names, but there are a bunch of other companies that copy the Author Solutions approach while competing with Author Solutions. And the way that they prey on novice indies is by paying pushy salespeople to tell that novice indie all the things she believes about herself in her book. So they pester them with messages saying, you're special. Your book is amazing. You're going to be the next thing. Just give us money and we'll make it happen. And this sales pitch works because it is exactly what the novice most wants to hear and secretly believes. And it's really predatory. And I've never recommended an author solutions company. I even regret the fact that my company, Author Media, sounds like Author Solutions. And there's been some confusion occasionally, not often, but occasionally I'll get really sad stories of people, you know, coming to me being like, you know, you all telling me all these terrible things, thinking I was the one that did it or my company is the one to do it. We don't publish books. We, we just train and provide education. So the question is, you know, how does the novice sell books? The answer is she doesn't really, or at least not very many. Because she published with one of these companies before she knew who she, her audience was and before her book was really ready, failure is the expected outcome. It, she's just set up to fail. She, she's with a company that published her before she was ready. She didn't get the feedback to make the book ready. You know, maybe she went through some rounds of editing, but she didn't go through the training to become the better author that she needs to be to compete in a really competitive world of thousand new books being published every day. And it costs some indie authors 10 or even $20,000 to learn not to go with an author solutions company or one of their competitors. You know, if only they'd spent a few weeks binging this free podcast, if only they had read some books about writing and publishing, they could have saved themselves. And we'll talk more about some of the other mistakes that novices make here in a second. So how do these different authors promote their books? We talked about how they sell them, how they publish them. How do they differ in their promotion? Well, for the guru, the guru has perhaps the broadest kind of library of tactics that can work for the guru, right? The guru can hand out copies at networking events and sell their coaching services. They can give copies to potential clients, but they can also, you know, speak at the stage at conferences really easily because most of the speaking slots that go to authors go to guru authors, right? Because they have an area of expertise that they're speaking on. Uh, it's also really easy for them to get media interviews uh, on their area of expertise. Again, some topics lend themselves to media interviews better than others, but almost all gurus can get podcast interviews on podcasts in their topic. They can also use advertising and book launches, email, basically every marketing tactic is available to the guru. The real challenge for the guru is figuring out which tactics to use and actually getting good at some of the tactics rather than dabbling in the tactics. So it's a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to promotion strategies for the guru. Now the pro indie is a little bit more restricted, but not a lot. Uh, and I love working with pro indies because they're very data-driven in their marketing. More than any of the other kind of indies, these indies often watch their numbers really closely. They're the most likely to have a spreadsheet that they're using to track sales. And it's not uncommon for a pro indie to know off the top of her head what her read-through rate is, what her click-through rate is on her Facebook ads. Like they just, they know their numbers. They're really paying attention and they're, they're approaching this in a really professional way. So some tactics that are popular among pro indies, price pulsing and free pulsing with BookBub. Because pro indies have often, they write more books than the guru. Uh, you know, typical guru might, might write a book a year or a book every other year. Pro indies are often writing two or three books a year when they, once they really find their rhythm. 
And as they do that, they start to have a lot of books in their backlist and they use these in really creative ways. So they'll reduce the price on this book for a short period of time and use a book bub promotion to drive attention to that book. And then the later pages in that book promote the other books. Basically, most of the episodes we talk about in this podcast are helping you be a better pro indie because there's a, a lot of cool stuff that you can do as you write more books. Amazon ads, of course, Facebook ads, of course, book sweeps, giveaways, story origin list exchanges, book launches, launch teams, all of these are tactics that are popular with pro indies. And I will say, I don't really talk about this, but email works for all of these indies and websites. Having a good website works for all of them. So I'm not going to say email every time. I'm not going to say website every time. Just assume you need an email list and you need a website because there's no one that gets away without having those in 2020. And yes, I'm, even the homeschoolers have good websites and they have email lists and they're collecting email lists at those book fairs. Everybody's got to have those. All right. So how does the backlist reviver promote? Well, the backlist reviver doesn't promote, at least in my experience, very much these older books. The goal often is they're promoting their new books and they're hoping that their new books are going to have enough of a wake to bring the backlist books along. And so it's kind of surfing off of the attention of the new books that are coming out. And so, arguably, the best tactic for a backlist reviver is to write an amazing traditionally published book that gets people so excited about that author that they want to go in and read all of her past books. And they're so impatient, they're going to buy the ebook and not wait two days for that $1.99 or 99 cent paperback to show up. Other than that, backlist revivers often leave a lot of promotion tactics on the table. They typically send out an email or two saying that their book is available again, but they often don't relaunch their book which is unfortunate because we had a whole episode on the relaunch method. I interviewed Chris Fox. He's got a great book on how to relaunch your book. And for backlist revivers who do use that method that we teach in this podcast, they do so much better. They sell so many more copies of their books. So there's a lot of potential here in that old list. Um, but another tactic that works really well for backlist revivers and one I'd like to see more of them doing is price pulsing and free pulsing their older books on BookBub. In, in my experience, they rarely do this because their focus is on their new books and they just can't be bothered to keep submitting their book to BookBub. They get a rejection and they assume BookBub will never have them and they just sit, quit submitting. And that's not how it works. <laughs> you got to sow if you want to reap and you're not going to reap every time you uh, submit to BookBub. And when I was a marketing director for a publishing company, we submitted all of our backlist to BookBub every month and we only got you know 10%, 20% accepted sometimes 30% accepted, but it was still worth it. <laughs> and it was a job. We had somebody, all they did, that's not all they did, but one of their responsibilities was keeping track of when each book needed to be resubmitted. I typically find it kind of hard to work with backlist revivers because they often have a hard time adapting their thinking to indie publishing and they're not very teachable. And so if you're a backlist reviver, the, the biggest thing that I would recommend right now anyway is to admit that indie publishing is different from traditional publishing and that you need to learn indie publishing and that, that, that you don't get full transfer credit. Some of the things that you learned in traditional publishing will transfer, but not everything. And there, you need to have respect for this as an industry and for this as a skill set. And you need to respect the authors who are succeeding. You need to respect the people who have something to teach you and have more humility than you might think would be justified because of the success that you're having in traditional publishing. Just because you're a traditional or a successful traditional author doesn't mean that you're going to be a successful indie author. You've got to do the work. Just because you're a good basketball player doesn't mean you're going to be a good baseball player. You've got to do the work to learn baseball. That said, there's nothing keeping backlist survivors from making a lot of money in indie publishing if they're willing to invest some time in learning about the process. Not, uh, I have more tips for you, so stick around in the episode and realize that spreadsheets are your friends. <laughs> it's real important. Uh, you want to hang out with the pro indies and watch what they're doing. Speaking of pro indies, let's talk about the hybrid. Uh, savvy hybrids approach indie marketing and promotion very similarly to pro indies. Uh, they have a real similar marketing approach. In fact, in many ways, a good hybrid is just a pro indie who also has an agent and a book deal with a traditional publisher. And everything that works for pro indies also work for hybrids. And so they have the whole tool set that pro indies have, but they also have an advantage in that it's often a little bit easier for them to get access to the media thanks to the connections provided by their traditionally 
published books, right? So their traditional publisher is making connections with them with TV and radio and podcasts and blogs. And they're able to then follow up with those people because the relationships are there to promote their indie book. And so they're able to make money with the left hand and they're able to make money with the right hand. And another difference is while pro indies lean a little bit more heavily into the various Amazon promotions, hybrids tend to do a little bit more PR if I were to make a distinction here, but they're, it's really hard to tell a, a pro indie apart from a hybrid just looking at their promotion. So let's talk about the homeschooler. The primary place homeschoolers promote their books are at, you guessed it, homeschool book fairs and conventions. <laughs> Another common place that they promote their book is on homeschool podcasts and homeschool publications. So there's this whole shadow homeschool economy and homeschool authors are advertising in all of those places, homeschool magazines, homeschool blogs. Uh, but homeschool podcasts are, are really big and they're very popular with homeschool parents. And there are a lot of popular homeschool podcasts out there and some take advertising from authors. <laughs> so it's a real easy way if you have a good book that's a good fit for the homeschool market to, to promote your book. For the CEO, uh, their uh, promotion uh, for their book is handled by a cross-functional team of stakeholders in the CEO's company and at the ghostwriting and publishing firm. And sometimes they'll also hire a PR firm. So if that sounds super corporate, it is. And if it sounds really expensive, it is. <laughs> Every single one of those people in that meeting between the three companies needs to get paid. Free copies are often given to clients. They're given away in waiting rooms or sold near the checkout if there's a checkout. You know, it all depends on the company. The book is also bundled into various other promotions that the company is doing. So they may hand out free books at a trade show or something like that. Again, I'm not going to talk too much about the CEO, but I just want you to be aware that there's a whole world of that kind of indie publishing. And then the novice. So the publishing companies that prey on novice authors also sell them marketing packages that sound like a lot and cost like they come with a lot. But in reality, they're just a press release, a WordPress template, some bookmarks, and a whole lot of nothing on social media. And yet this will all be in a bundle that costs thousands of dollars. It's, it's really, it's, it's on the verge of criminal what these companies do to uh, novice authors. And part of why I'm doing this episode, I don't want any of you to be a novice author. You don't have to be, you can be educated. You can become one of these others. One of the biggest challenges that novice authors face is that the companies that they're partnering with are so expensive per book that it's hard for them to be competitive on price. So the ebook royalty that a pro indie gets is 70% as the ebook royalty that a, somebody with Westbo gets is 35%. So they're making half of the money per book and often too little to profitably advertise. They have to be effectively twice as good at advertising as a pro indie to be able to break even and compete. And it's just too hard. The, the competition on advertising is too tough. I don't know of any authors going with one of these indie publishing firms who's able to profitably advertise. And if they're not the actual publisher, if they're not using their own KDP account, they can't even advertise on Amazon. <laughs> so the whole Amazon advertising ecosystem is closed to them because they're not technically the publisher. Their publisher is Westbo. Now they can still buy Google ads and Facebook ads and BookBub ads. There's ads they can buy, but Amazon ads, which are like the bread and butter for pro indies, not available to the novice. Very, very tragic. The novice often ends up with the worst of both worlds, the worst of traditional publishing and the worst of indie publishing. So I don't recommend. And some of these publishers that prey on novices, they call themselves hybrid publishers. And oh, I, I, I don't have, I don't have a lot of good things to say about them. I'm sorry. And I know some of them listen to this podcast and I'm probably going to get some angry emails. Thomas at authormedia.com. That's where you can send your angry emails. All right. So now let's talk about common mistakes that each of these uh, seven authors make. So these are just mistakes I see them making. They don't all make all of these mistakes, but these are kind of some pitfalls to watch out for if you're choosing to go this path. So the guru, one mistake is overly dense back cover copy. This is a mistake that all of the authors can fall into, but the guru I feel like is particularly susceptible to this because they're an expert. You've spent the last 20 years of your life becoming an expert on a topic and it's really hard if that's the case for you to talk about that topic in a way that makes sense in a salesy way to someone who knows nothing about the topic. So the guru probably more than anybody else needs to pay for help with back cover copy to get that outside perspective. 
sometimes the guru will skip developmental edits, which I think is a big mistake. Uh, and for some of the same reasons, right? There's this concept of the curse of knowledge where you know so much, you forget what it's like to not know what you know. And it's the math professor problem. When the math professor talks for an hour and the poor freshman in the math class have no idea what he said because while it all made sense to him, he's been doing this for 20 years and the freshman has not. And so it's important to get developmental edits. In my experience, gurus get good copy edits and they find their way to good copy editors. But often the copy editor is the first person to see their manuscript. And I think that's a mistake. Gurus often can have weak covers. But again, this can happen to everybody. And then the other two pitfalls I see gurus falling into is writing a book that's either too long or writing a book that's too short. Uh, obviously you can't do both at the same time, <laughs> but sometimes a guru wants to put everything she's ever learned on a topic into one book and they create this tome and it's got this big thud and a big long book like that, while it can work in traditional publishing and if you're offset printing, it might work. If you get much over about 250 pages, it becomes really hard for the book to be profitable as a paperback and it's hard to price it competitively if it's too short and there's a kind of a sweet spot and i've talked about this in my other episodes on indie publishing in that 200 to 250 page range and really i encourage you to edit down to get if your book's 300 pages do some editing um, really cut 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 and you know put your book on a diet and get it down to 250 pages and if your book's, you know, 150 pages, send it to the gym to go lift some weights and get up to 200 pages. There's, there's kind of an ideal length there for books. And it's, that's due not just to kind of what readers are expecting in terms of length, but also in terms of the economics of print-on-demand books. And so because print, how print-on-demand books are priced, the sweet spot is in that 200 to $250 range. And this is true even if you're going with Ingram Spark for your printing because they use the same machines, same Hewlett Packard printer. <laughs> so the economics are more or less the same, even if they're pricing them a little bit differently. So common mistakes, it was hard to come up with common mistakes for the pro indie because there's not a lot of common pitfalls that I see too often. There's a lot of mistakes that pro indies make, but each pro indie is like a snowflake making their own unique exotic mistakes, partly because they're the ones who are investing the most in educating themselves. So, so they're able to avoid a lot of the common mistakes. But uh, one is rapid releasing too early or holding books back in order to rapid release. This is really hard technique to pull off successfully. And the authors who were able to make it work make a lot of noise about it. And a lot of pro indies go into rapid release and they lose a lot of money. And I've talked about this in other episodes and I'll have a link to my episode about rapid release in the show notes. But yeah, rapid release is really, really risky. And I really, I don't recommend it until you learn to rapid write. It don't hold a book back. Do a launch, write your books, uh, use good practices. Rapid release is not a panacea. And the other mistake pro indies sometimes make is not writing to market. But I feel like they only make that early on in their career. Pretty early in their career, they learn that if you want to write the books that people want to read, you need to write the books that people already want to read. So you have to start with the reader in mind. All right, so backlist reviver, some common mistakes that she makes. You know, I've already alluded to these, you know, not uh, learning the process of publishing a book, uh, getting a cut rate cover. So while the, the backlist reviver gets her manuscript back, she often doesn't get rights back to the cover. And I think publishers do this because they know authors are not going to be able to get as good of a cover on their own as what they got from the publisher. And this is often the case <laughs> because the backlist reviver hasn't, you know, educated herself or himself on what makes for a good cover. They haven't done the research for what makes a good cover now, right? Their cover may have been really resonant 15 years ago when the book came out, but cover designs change over time and fashion changes and colors change. And, you know, you need to have a hip cover that's cutting edge today. And so really investing in education on what makes for a good cover, they often skip that. They just hire somebody and then they're done. Another common mistake is messy metadata. This is a really unique to the backlist reviver because at some point there's a handover of who's managing the metadata because it goes from the traditional publisher to the indie author and they often don't know what metadata is they don't know how to change their metadata they haven't listened to our episodes on metadata and so metadata ends up being a mess which means their book is hard to find when you type it into a computer or in amazon 
and then just hiring, going with the cheapest option. Backlist revivers often are just really, they're either looking for the cheapest option or the easiest option. And those almost always lead to trouble. Now for the hybrid, the common mistakes I see them making is getting pushed around by their agent. So the reason why hybrids have so much conflict with their agent is that the agent only gets paid when the hybrid writes a traditionally published book. The way agent relationships work, most of them, uh, the agent gets a 15% commission on traditional royalties. And because the agent doesn't make money off of the indie books, they see those indie books as competition. It's money that they're not making. They feel like they're doing work, coaching the author, and they're only making half the money. And so the agents are often kind of subtly and overtly really pushing their clients to make all of their books traditionally published books because otherwise it it doesn't help the agent. Now, agents like their authors, and there's a lot of good agents, but there's just a conflict of interest that's often subconscious, I think, (laughs) in the agent's psyche. And because of this, there's just a tension. There's a higher tension, and it's really, it's a unique problem to the hybrid author because none of the other authors in this list have agents with the exception of the backlist reviver and the back and agents have already made all of their money from the backlist revivers book, right? They, they got their advance. They got all the royalties. They know there's no more money coming. And so they're not threatened by the backlist being available and indie. In fact, some agents will help you get your backlist reprinted, but a brand new book that they're not getting a commission on. Now that's a problem. So that's the one big problem that hybrids have to navigate. The other is getting pushed around by their publisher. So publishers don't like it when their authors go indie. And it's not uncommon for publishers to put clauses in their contracts forbidding their authors from publishing their books independently. Partly because they know once you taste that indie margins and you start making more than 80 cents a copy or more than a dollar a copy, uh, and you're making two or three dollars a copy, you're like, why am I going to this traditional publisher? This money's so much better over here. Even if I'm selling half as many books, I'm still making twice as many dollars. And so the mistake is getting pushed around by your publisher. You really got to stand up for yourself if you want to go hybrid. And you got to maintain that good relationship. Uh, it's a really interesting path to navigate. A lot of hybrid authors are getting pushed and pulled to go full one or the other. And to stay a hybrid, to stay neutral is a challenge. It's an interpersonal, it's a negotiating challenge. As for the homeschooler, I think the big mistake I see homeschoolers making is ignoring Amazon and going with weak covers. Because homeschool books are hand-sold, it's easier to get away with a weak cover. But to really make money in the homeschool market, you're not just selling them yourself at the bookstore. You're also getting the homeschool retailers to stock your book so that you're at book fairs that you're not attending personally. And you're getting your book featured in curriculum and other things like that. And the cover's really important for that. And so while you can get to kind of a moderate level of success with a weak cover, Uh, you can't get to true success or you can't get to the total success your book could have with a weak cover. CEO common mistakes they make, not reviewing the ghostwritten rough draft, giving slow feedback to the editors and collaborators. This is one of the unique things about the CEO. With all these other indie authors, they really care about the book. Possible exception of the backlist reviver. Sometimes they don't really care about their older books. They're just, you know, doing it because they feel like they should. But most of these other authors, they really care about the book. The CEO doesn't or cares the least. They're not writing the book. They're not putting much labor into it. They're not spending their own money on it, but they're supposed to be involved in the process, right? The ghostwriter is wanting to get feedback to make sure that things are accurate and uh, a common, if you, if you talk to those folks, so they're, they're often complaining that their clients won't get back to them because <laughs> the CEO is dealing with, you know, fires in the company and she doesn't want to deal with her book. So that's the most common mistakes I see that CEOs make uh, just giving slow feedback being slow to return emails. You may know a boss that's like that. <laughs> okay. And if I, I, this is a real negative section, but I have tips for success here in a second, but the rejected novice. So what mistakes do the rejected novice make? The biggest mistake is publishing the first book first. There's a reason that one of the book marketing commandments is says thou shalt not publish thine first book first. And I'll have a link to that episode on the book marketing commandments. Your first book is for therapy, it's for developing your craft, it's for developing yourself as an author, it's not for publication, at least not right away. It's not until after you've written two or three books that you have perspective to know whether that first book you wrote should be published, and if it should, how to do it well. 
Other common mistakes that the novice makes is getting pushed around by pushy salespeople or getting rushed by pushy salespeople and then also getting rushed by their age. So as people get older, they feel more rushed. They're like, oh, you know, I only have a few years left. I, I got to do this quick. And they start taking shortcuts. And those shortcuts actually make it take longer or reduce the overall reach of their book. And so if you're getting older, don't use that as an excuse for taking shortcuts. I know that's hard to hear, but the rules still apply to you. You still got to do the work. You got to sow in order to reap. And if you want to have a good book, you got to do the work. And, and often... I'm going to get so much angry email after this episode. Um, Often the biggest challenge as people get older that I find is travel, right? They're traveling the world and they're spending their money on that and they're spending their energy on that. And it comes at the expense of their book. And if that's what you want to do and you've been waiting to see Paris and spend a month in France, then, you know, I'm not saying not to do it, but just realize that everything you choose to do, you're choosing not to do anything else with that time and, and with that money. And if you want to get professional results. You need to be willing to put in professional time and money. Uh, so not investing in training and education is another one of the mistakes the novice makes. And then assuming indie publishing is harder than it is, right? Because the novice, since they haven't really educated themselves on the process, they assume that indie publishing is this just impenetrable, super complicated, no way I could do this. It's only for the kids. And that's not true. It's actually pretty easy. <laughs> I have episodes that walk you through the process that are free. There's books you can buy and courses you can take. All right. So those are the mistakes. Now let's get to the fun part. Tips for success. Now, hopefully by now you figured out which of these authors you're leaning towards, but you can, pr- you can steal tips from the others. But Sometimes <laughs> some of these tips only work for one or the other. So let's talk about the guru plan to spend a lot of money getting a, a good book cover more than you would think you need. You can make money off of a nonfiction book with a book cover, even if people don't read it, right? If you give a really good speech and you have a compelling book cover, people will buy that happily and sometimes even leave you a good review, even if they don't read their book because <laughs> they heard your speech and they assume the book is pretty similar to your speech. Whereas a bad book cover makes getting more speaking gigs harder. You can actually torpedo your career by getting a cheap book cover as a guru. So the cover really, the cover matters for everybody, but the cover really matters for the guru because it's a business card. And if that business card is a bad business card, it's shooting yourself in the foot. And depending on your topic, consider putting your face on at least one of your books on the cover, your face on the cover. This has some really nice branding and recognition benefits that can really benefit you over the long run of your career. Also consider advertising your book on podcasts. This is a really great tactic that most gurus don't do. I've done a whole episode on how to do this, how to advertise your book on podcasts, and it's a really great tactic. And there's a lot of podcasts that you can advertise your book on. A lot of podcasts that don't have advertisers, or maybe they just have an an audible read and you can very easily pay them to be added to the audible read where they're recommending your book on audible. Speaking of audible, make your book an audiobook <laughs> for nonfiction. Audiobooks are so big. They're such a big part of the market and you might be the only guru in your space willing to pay for an audiobook. I'm just shocked how many gurus they just see the book as a paper book and they don't really value the ebook or the audiobook as a source of gaining attention. And the audiobook especially it's money on the table you're leaving there. And I have a lot of episodes on audiobooks, how to make them. I'll have a link in the show notes. And then my final tip for the guru is to experiment with Amazon advertising. I have have a bunch of episodes on Amazon advertising too. Spend a few hundred dollars on training and ads and and see where it gets you. You may find that between the increase of sales from the ads, but also from the increase in your business, your speaking business, your coaching clients or whatever, it more than pays for itself. All right, pro indie. So what are my tips for the pro indie? One is to learn to write faster. And yes, I have an episode on this. So you really want to go to the show notes uh, for this episode, authormedia.com forward slash 286 to get the show notes for this episode. Because I'll be giving a lot of tips here. And, and for many of these tips, I have a whole episode on specifically how to implement that tactic. Uh, my next tip for the pro indie is to pick a pace that you can maintain. Your biggest threat as an author is burnout. It it actually can come from success. Too much success, too much intense working can burn you out as an author. And and picking a good pace is really important. And I have an episode on how to prevent 
burnout as an author. This is a topic uh, I've learned a lot about the hard way, and I've shared some of my lessons in some very personal episodes that you can listen to in, in terms of burnout. And one of the ways you can help fight burnout is to hire a virtual assistant. And again, I have an episode on how to find a virtual assistant. And you're like, where do I find a good VA? Well, we have a jobs board now at authormedia.social. It's a great place to hire a fellow author to be your virtual assistant. And you'd be shocked how good, especially listeners of this podcast are. They make for really great virtual assistants and they'd be very happy to work for you. They're learning, they're making money, and you are taking things off your plate, which allow you to do more of what only you can do, which is keep writing books in your series. And then my final piece of advice for pro indies is to invest in your business education because you're becoming a business. You're becoming a publishing business, right? As you're making more money, you're having more business challenges. And I have a course specifically for you. It's called the tax and business guide for authors. I created this course with my CPA father. He's been working with authors for 35 years and on the tax side. And this course is taught by both of us. Different sessions are taught. Uh, He does the tax stuff and I do the more business stuff. But it goes into, you know, what special tax deductions you can make as an author, how to create a business plan for your pro indie publishing business, how to, you know, how to put together a good business strategy, how to make a living as an author, how to do business, how to be a business in the eyes of the IRS, how, when and why to form an LLC, how to reduce your likelihood of being audited by the IRS and more. There's a lot of business stuff you need to educate yourself on. This course is it's $100. It's $50 if you're a patron. It's well worth the money. But, you know, if you don't get this course, buy a book on it, right? Really educate yourself on the business side. It really will pay for itself many times over. For the backlist reviver, some tips. might really have one big tip, and this is going to change your life. If you're a backlist reviver, take one book and go through the whole process of publishing it indie yourself. Insist on clicking every button yourself, every field you type into it yourself. Hire a mentor if you need to, to be on a Zoom call with you as you do it, right? Hire an indie author, you know, pay them by the hour to coach you through it. But often in your mind, indie publishing is this big, intimidating thing, and it's not. And if you just go through the process one time, you'll realize how easy it is and how you don't have to hire some big, expensive company to do this work for you. And then once you know how the process works, I'm not saying you have to do it every time yourself. You also could hire a virtual assistant. There are a lot of indie authors who have done this before. They know how the process works and they'd be happy to do it for you on an hourly basis. And you're helping to create jobs. It's a win-win. You're boosting the society. You're boosting the economy. You're benefiting the world. So I'm a big fan of hiring virtual assistants. If you're busy, if you're slammed with work, create jobs for somebody else. Spread the love. And so that's my next step. Hire a virtual assistant. Listen to my episode on hiring a virtual assistant. And then go to authormedia.social. Go to the jobs board. Post a job. And I'm not making any money on any of that. (laughs) I'm just trying to match make authors who want to be a VA with authors who need a VA. And then the final tip for the backlist revivers to experiment with Amazon advertising. You may find that effective Amazon ads may help drive sales to your traditional books, right? Not all traditional publishers are good at Amazon ads, or maybe they are, they are good, but they're not spending money on ads for your books. And you can supplement by advertising your indie books. You can't, if you're traditionally published, you can't buy ads for your traditional books. But if you get people excited about your indie books and they want to see what else you have, they may go on to buy your traditional books and you've got a nice little synergistic relationship and you become a bit like a hybrid. Speaking of hybrids, my biggest piece of advice for a hybrid author is don't sign any contract that limits your indie publishing. Just say no. And uh, one way that traditional publishers really take advantage of authors or, or get power over those authors is that because they're always paying them for work they haven't done yet, the author is always in debt to the traditional publisher. Uh, not money, but they owe them labor uh, that they've already been paid for. And that can be a real trap. And they use that power. It's like, hey, you know, you owe us this work and you know, we'll pay you now for money later. And, and they, they get that author kind of by the neck and they're like, well, we're only gonna give you another advance if you agree to stop indie publishing or not to write competing books or whatever. And so just don't sign that kind of contract. <laughs> and, and find an agent who will fight for you and not team up with the publisher against you. You know you've got the wrong agent when you feel like your publisher and your agent are on a team against you. Your agent needs to always feel like they're on a team with you against the publisher. 
and you know, I'm saying this, I used to be a former agent. Okay. Your agent needs to be on your team. And if you ever feel like the agent is not on your team, get a different agent, but don't ever go no agent. <laughs> it's tricky being a hybrid. And there's a reason why there's so few hybrids left. Cause it's the relational path is really hard to walk. And I talked to a lot of unpublished authors and their dream is to become a hybrid. I'm like, do you realize what you're doing to yourself? Like, this is a really difficult path. I know a lot more happy traditionally published authors and a lot more happy indie authors than I know happy hybrids. Hybrids, it's a, it's a painful, it's a painful path. It's, it's a, yeah. Uh, so another tip, learn to say no to your agent. And then another tip is to find an indie friendly agent. You know, most agent, most agents pretend to be indie friendly, uh, but it's really hard to find one who's truly indie friendly. I don't know how like a, a test or like a, some sort of like questions you can find to vet your agents. I, I know hybrid authors who've gone through agent after agent after agent who are good agents, but not good agents for hybrids. So it's tricky. It's tricky. I, I, I wish I had uh, a, more of a silver bullet for you. But I guess my next step is read some books on negotiation. <laughs> and a really good book on negotiating is um, Negotiating Like Your Life Depends On It. It's a book by a hostage negotiator. And it's a fascinating book. It's got some really practical advice and it will help you, I think, interacting with your agent and with your publisher to find win-win situations. And I'll have a link to that book uh, in the show notes. The title of the book is Never Split the Difference, Negotiating Like Your Life Depends on It. And then my final advice for the hybrid is to invest in training on advertising. I recommend uh, Chris Fox's excellent course, Ads for Authors Who Hate Math. And I have a, an affiliate link to that in the show notes. There's also a special discount for patrons, but for anybody, not just the hybrid, but for anybody who's wanting to learn advertising, learn how to do Facebook ads or Amazon ads, this is the best course to get started. I really, really like it. There's other good trainings, but this is the one. Uh, I was planning on making my own training on ads. And when I saw this course, I was like, I'll just endorse this one instead. This one's so good. <laughs> so I despaired of ever doing my own after I watched this one. I may still do my own, but it'll mostly just be a promo for this one by Chris Fox. All right. Uh, so some tips for the homeschooler and join the homeschool community without judgment. It doesn't mean you have to homeschool your children. There are authors who sell very successfully in the homeschool community. Some don't have children at all. Sometimes they don't uh, homeschool their children, but you need to love the community. They need to feel like they're loved by you. If you're secretly judging them or if you secretly think that they're a bunch of right-wing nut jobs, they're going to sense that and you're not going to do well there. So, yeah, uh, join the community without judgment. It's my first piece of advice. And my second piece of advice is try to get on stage at homeschool events. So the authors who are on stage have a huge advantage over those who don't. One, you often get the table for free if you're on stage. So it's a lot less expensive to go to these different conferences if you're speaking. But the second advantage of getting on stage and speaking is that when you're done speaking, you tend to get your table flooded, right? More people know who you are. They get interested in you. And there's a lot of opportunities to speak as a novelist at these homeschool events because, you know, I feel like almost every homeschool kid feels like they want to write a novel. <laughs> they all want to learn about novel writing. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And so you can teach on that and it's, uh, it's very compelling and you'll have a full room full. Of, and a lot of the homeschool moms also want to write novels. So there's a, it's one of the few places where as a novelist, you can actually speak on novel writing and have a room full of people, right? Most people don't care. Uh, most people don't want to read the director's commentary of, of your DVD, but at a homeschool commission, it's a little bit different. All right. Tips for the CEO, uh, be responsive and involved in the process. And if you haven't yet signed a contract with a ghostwriting firm, consider spending money on training and learning how to write and going the guru path instead. It's a lot cheaper to publish the book yourself through KDP. Right? Spending $100,000 with one of these firms, it's a lot of money. And if you're willing to learn how to do the process yourself, even if you're hiring your own ghostwriter, you're acting as your own general contractor, so to speak, you have more control, you have more input, you spend a lot less money, and you end up being happier with the outcome because you were more involved in the process. I realize there's not a lot of CEOs who are likely listening to this, and, and many of you are like, you have no idea how busy I am. There's no way I can do that. And I get it. I get it. But if you can go the guru path rather than the CEO path, uh, you'll have a much better ROI potentially. Uh, but it all depends on the comparative advantage. Maybe your time really is that valuable uh, where it doesn't work. 
And then for the novice, I've been giving you advice, uh, tips this whole time, <laughs> but for the novice, I recommend uh, finishing your first book, then putting it aside and working on the second book. I know that's hard. I know you're the exception and you don't need to do it. That's a rule for the other novices, not you, but just do it anyway. I know, I know, but don't publish your first book first. Invest in you before you invest in your book. Invest in your education. You've got a bunch of books in you potentially. And the more you invest in yourself, in your own education, your own edification, the more you practice and develop your craft, the more all of those books are going to be. So before you spend money getting an editor for that first book that you wrote as a masterpiece, spend some money on getting some coaching and some mentorship on your writing because the editor is going to give you some help that will help you get better as a writer, no doubt. But you may find that that money is better spent uh, improving your craft overall because if you can really understand how to remove passive voice from your writing or if you really can understand how to make your protagonist more proactive rather than reactive – then you can on your own go in and edit your book and make changes to your book and now you're a better writer and you don't have to pay somebody to point out every instance of passive voice. You'll still need an editor, but they'll be able to find more advanced things. Uh, listen to podcasts like this one. Uh, listen to the episodes that you think don't apply to you. You know, if, if you're skipping novel marketing episodes, at least listen to the first two or three minutes to see, because I try to explain at the beginning of every episode if this episode applies to you or not or, or whether it will apply to you or not. And you may be surprised that episodes that you don't think apply to you because you write fiction or nonfiction or whatever actually do apply to you. Like for instance, that episode last time, my last episode on pitching, it's a really important episode if you're not yet published. That's not an episode for just traditionally published authors pitching to agents. It's for people who have not yet finished their books, learning to pitch their book at parties. This is what that episode's about. And I found that a lot of people skip that episode because I don't think they realized what it was about. Uh, read books on writing, publishing, and marketing, and take courses on writing, publishing, and marketing. Basically, keep investing in yourself. It really, you are the best investment that you can make. All right, that was, I think, the longest episode I've ever recorded. <laughs> so, well done if you stuck around. I would normally, if an episode is this long, I would slice it into like a multiple pieces. But this one, I, I don't feel like it would make sense as seven episodes and. So anyway, it's just going to be a long episode. <laughs> anyway, our sponsor today is the Author Media Mastermind Groups. If you want me to personally help you with your publishing goals, I've worked with thousands of authors from beginners to New York Times bestsellers, and I can help you go further faster in your career. And if you want you know, personalized, interactive training and encouragement from me and a small group of other authors, I encourage you to check out the Author Media Mastermind Groups. We have three groups currently that are open to new members. There's a group for authors who are already published and they're wanting to sell more copies of their book. We have, uh, so this is, you know, for pro indies, <laughs> this is the group for you. I've got a group for writers. These are people who are not yet published, but are wanting help with that publishing process. Uh, you have to finish your first draft to get into this group. But if you have a draft finished, we've got room in this group for you. And then the third group is influencers. These are people who are wanting to grow their influence through blogging, podcasting, and public speaking. If you want to learn how to become a profitable guru, this is the course for you. <laughs> and uh, anyway, if you have any questions about those groups, feel free to reach out to, uh, to me at authormedia.com. And I have some an exciting piece of personal news that I'm going to share only with you, the core listeners. And that is that we are expecting a new baby. Umstat number three, the tiebreaker, is coming in December. So we're very excited. My poor wife has a one-year-old, a two-year-old, and a baby on the way. So she deserves some kind of trophy. But I'm very thankful for her and very excited to meet our the new addition to our family. Our featured patron today is Eloise White, author of Soul Inspirations, Gain a New Relationship with Jesus as You Trust Him to Be Your Confident Healer and Life-Giving Friend. Uh, thank you, Eloise, for being a patron of this podcast, helping keep the show on the air. Eloise and all other patrons get a special bonus episode every month, as well as exclusive discounts on many of our courses, like the tax and business course uh, for authors that I mentioned. So it's half price for patrons. If you want to become a patron, I'll have a link in the show notes. And if you have a question that you want me to answer on a future episode, call our listener helpline. We have a cell phone version that you can call at 512-827-8377. But the better way to do it is to leave us a high quality recording at authormedia.com forward slash contact. So just go to Author Media, click on contact. You can record right there on your phone, but it's a much higher quality than the telephone 
quality, even though you're recording it on your phone. <laughs> anyway, the Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, blog post by Shauna Latelier, and I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find that blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com forward slash 286. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.